Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. If you're a creature of habit, I'm sorry for disrupting your life by walking down one of the middle aisles on my way up to preach this morning. I'll give you a chance to reorient yourself. Um, As Jason mentioned, uh, if you are new, uh, maybe wondering where we're going this morning, uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and we have been for, I guess, the better part of going on, what, two and a half months now, maybe? Um, We're committed to uh, these three chapters of Matthew's gospel account up until uh, we get to December, and then we're going to dive into a Christmas series that's going to lead us up to Christmas Eve. Um, our Christmas Eve service will be the culmination of that series. Really excited about that. We, we had a brainstorming session this past Thursday to talk about that. Um, it, it's going to be really good stuff. Um, Essentially, the essence, just to, to give a little bit of a teaser, even this morning, is um, this idea of unwrapping Christmas, getting after some of the aspects of the Christmas story that maybe are less familiar to us or, or that we tend to not slow down quite as readily with respect to as we walk through the Christmas story and the scriptures. And we're going to kind of draw out some of the, the implications and realities of the Christmas story that don't often get talked about. And so uh, hopefully that excites you to come explore things with us when we get to December, but we're not there yet, right? So we continue to plow through Jesus's greatest sermon ever preached um, because Jesus, as I've said before, is the greatest preacher who's ever lived. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ himself, the king proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, calling us to, to come under his reign, trusting that his kingdom really is a better one because he truly is a better king. He's the king, as we've talked about for weeks now, having come to to satisfy the heart-piercing demands of the law on behalf of sinners like you and me. He's the king, having come to establish a new covenant people for himself on the basis of the blood that he would pour out at Mount Calvary as you read Matthew's gospel to its end. He's the king having come to plant his flag of kingship deep within our hearts, filling us with his spirit so that you and I might sing with our hearts and our lives this song of the kingdom that he's been unpacking for us for now the better part of two chapters. In chapter five, uh, if you were around in the beginning, you you may recall this is how Jesus started the sermon off. He, He began to dig deep into what it means that he would come after our hearts bringing us to our knees in this uh, posture of spiritual poverty so that he might bring forth this song that would sing of his glorious grace. And that's really a theme that that we're gonna see continue to the very end of this series. In chapter six, we saw Jesus focus on what it is to live in the presence of God in both glad submission and deep dependence as children of our heavenly father. So that the first chapter, uh, first half of chapter six uh, was Jesus dealing with matters of religious practice, what it means to fast and pray and, and give to those in need in light of our relationship with our father in heaven. Second half of the chapter, going back to last week, having to do with the cares and stresses of the world, what it means to submit to and trust our heavenly father with our very lives. As we move into this last chapter, chapter seven of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is gonna continue to focus his attention on what it means to relate to God as a father while at the same time addressing some of the interpersonal challenges of what it is to be a kingdom people, you might say. And I don't think it's gonna surprise you to see and to hear that Jesus is gonna drive us yet again to the very first words of this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is going to yet again reveal our poverty of spirit, our desperate need for God's kindness, our our desperate need for God's mercy, our desperate need for God's grace, which is actually the best place to be in Jesus's upside down kingdom 
Uh, for those of you who have been around for this series, you, you know that to be true. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew 7. Uh, we'll be in the first 12 verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I think there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can use that Bible as we walk through this morning's passage, and you can have that Bible if you don't own one. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us because we got a, a, a good bit of ground to cover this morning, and we'll get after this thing. Father, you say to us in this morning's very passage, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. God, whether we realize it or not, every single one of us comes into this place needy this morning, particularly as it pertains to your enabling and sustaining grace in our lives. There's no way we can sing this, this song of the kingdom, so to speak, on the basis of our own strength. We can't muster that song in and of ourselves. We, we are needy children. So I pray that we would, one, see that, but in seeing that, that, that we would also see and take note of and lean into the reality that you love for us to persistently come to you and beg you to give us what we need so that you might be glorified in us and we might be satisfied in you. God, would you do that this morning? Holy Spirit, we need you. Thank you, Jesus, for the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That as we talked about earlier, the Spirit of God indwells each and every one of us in this room who are Christians. And that means that you can do incredibly powerful and miraculous things in this very space as we sit with your word this morning. And so would you, God, would you please move in power. In the name of King Jesus, I pray and ask these things. Amen. So I mentioned throughout this series that, that there are a number of things in the Sermon on the Mount that, that have shaped not only the church, but the world outside of the church. As Jesus says things like, turn the other cheek, or love your enemies, or do to others what you wish others would do to you. Right out of the gate this morning, Jesus says something here in chapter seven, uh, which many both inside and outside the church have, have taken and run with in ways that Jesus never intended. Look at verse one, right out of the gate. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The good news is this morning, like nobody ever takes verse one out of context, right? So we should like 15 minutes and we'll be out of this place and we can go, go grab brunch this morning, right? No, of course that's not the case. Verse one is arguably one of the most misinterpreted verses in all of the Bible. As many people have assumed it to mean this sort of blanket passivity, this, an easy tolerance, uh, a throwing out the window, any sort of moral distinctions, which is an interpretation that, fails to consider what Jesus has said up to this point in this great sermon. Right? Jesus says in verse five 
which is just four verses, if my math is good this morning, after verse one, right? In verse five, Jesus says that the one who's been humbled by, mourns, and repents of his or her own sin, that person will actually have the appropriate posture and clarity to address the sin in the life of a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus will also go on to say in verse six, not to give dogs what is holy, nor throw your pearls before pigs. It's a command which requires some sort of discernment, some sort of judgment as to who classifies where, right? So that immediately following the section on judgment is the call to exercise judgment. In next week's passage, we'll see Jesus caution us to, to beware of false prophets, recognizable, Jesus says, by their fruits, which is an assumption that we'll actually take a look at the tree as it pertains to those around us and make assessment between good fruit and bad fruit. Second Timothy 2, Paul calls out Hymenaeus and Philetus by name. He doesn't even vaguely generalize it. Or, or how about Matthew chapter 18 or, or 1 Corinthians 5, passages having to do with the biblical practice of church discipline, an absolute impossibility if, if Jesus is calling us to an easy tolerance, a universal passivity, so to speak. Which is why I think it, it's fairly clear that Jesus isn't making a blanket statement here in verse one about judging others. Judge not doesn't mean to, to never acknowledge another person's sin. What Jesus is describing here is, is this heightened awareness of the sins of others that hypocritically fails to see and address the sins in oneself, perhaps the even greater sins in oneself than the ones that we notice in other people. Jesus makes this pretty clear through the log and speck imagery, right? Which is really one of the more comical things that, that Jesus says in the gospel accounts, if you actually get a picture of, of what he's describing. Right, try to envision someone with a telephone pole coming out of their eye, trying to address the tiniest piece of sawdust in another person's eye. It's ridiculous, right? Like, how could anyone possibly see around the beam without some sort of impaired vision? It's Jesus's way of communicating a blindness of sorts, going back to even that healthy eye, bad eye language from last week's passage. Anybody else when you were a kid play that miserable game, Operation? You remember that? I don't know what that was. Like it, it wasn't joyful for anybody, not for the kid, not for the parent, and yet most of us bought the game, right? And, and the object, if you, I don't know, lived in a hut out in the wilderness, um, through the last several decades and maybe you aren't aware of this game, like you would take a tiny pair of tweezers and try to get, grab a, a plastic um, bone of, of sorts on this board game body and try to remove it from, from this hole without touching the sides because if you did, it would go off with this miserable buzzer sound that, that was way too loud for any board game, right? What Jesus, think about this, what Jesus is describing here. It's worse than a blind person leading another blind person. It's the picture that Jesus is describing of a blind person taking on the occupation of an eye surgeon. I don't know if anybody in this room, you're braver than me, if you would sign up for some sort of um, eye surgery when you knew that the person that was gonna perform it on you had no vision. Like, nobody's doing that, right? Nobody's signing up for that operation. To, to use the language of one commentator, what Jesus is describing here, it's a sensitivity to sin in others that's been desensitized to the sin in one's own heart. 
See an incredibly helpful illustration of this in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12, in the wake of David's affair with, with Bathsheba and his sending of her husband to die on the battlefield premeditatively. In 2 Samuel 12, you pick up the story and it says this in verse one, and the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet Nathan, to David. And he came to him and he said to him, and he gives this parable, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Quite the injustice, right? Taking what belongs to another man. It goes on to say in verses five and six, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's response, shame on the man who would take what belongs to another man. It's heartless. It's deserving of death even. The very next verse, verse seven of 2 Samuel 12, and Nathan said to David, you are the man. It's you, David. Like, you're the one who, who's heartlessly taken what belongs to another man. Not only his bride, but his life. You're the one deserving of death, David. David was so quick to anger with respect to someone else's sin all the while completely desensitized to the very same sin in his own heart. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this morning's passage says, we find it so easy to turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look at ours through the wrong end of a telescope. We, we use some strong term for someone else's sin, but a euphemism for our own. We easily spot a speck of phoniness in another because we have a log jam of it in our own lives. Furthermore, we especially hate our own faults when we see them in others. Wrath toward the speck in someone else's life may come from the suppressed guilt, he says, over the same massive sin in our own lives. Log-toting speck inspectors are hypocrites, Jesus says. They do not care at all about the speck in the other person's eye. All they really care about is building up themselves in their own eyes. You, you remember what Jesus said back in chapter five, if you were around for that part of the series early on? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It, it was the Pharisee, remember, who could stand on a corner and look at a publican, at a tax collector, and say, I thank God I'm not like that man. And yet it was the scribes and Pharisees whose righteousness Jesus declared to be lacking as they pointed out the specks in the eyes of everyone around them. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, says, what is fundamentally at stake, I think, is attitude. This is clearly seen in that particular kind of critical spirit found in the gossip. It is not always the case that what the gossip, gossip says is malicious. What he says might, in fact, be strictly true. But it is always the case that he says it maliciously. That, that is, he speaks without any desire to build up or any real concern to instill discernment. He wants only to puff himself up or to be heard or to enhance his own reputation or to demean the person about whom he is speaking. 
I think what, what Carson says there gets at the, the heart of what Jesus has been, been saying all along, right? As he brings it back to what's below the surface. Our heart level motivations, attitude, intentions, the, the, the thing driving our very words and actions underneath the surface of it all. To come back around to the Kent Hughes commentary, he goes on to say, there is a universe of difference between being discerningly critical and hypercritical. A discerning spirit is constructive. A hypercritical spirit is destructive. The person with a destructive, overcritical spirit revels in criticism for its own sake. And he goes on to say, the critical spirit, and get this picture in your mind, the critical spirit is like the carrion fly that buzzes with a sickening hum of satisfaction over sores, preferring corruption to health. And thinking of it with that kind of imagery in mind, I think it's easy to see how what Jesus is addressing here is the, the antithesis, the, the opposite end of the spectrum of the kingdom ethic of love that he's been talking about for a couple chapters now. And Jesus goes so far as to say that those who divvy out such blind criticism and, and merciless condemnation, they will receive it themselves. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Some believe Jesus is talking about the judgment of man, the idea that a critical spirit invites criticism on oneself, that what you dish out will come to you in full measure from others. After all, the, the most critical uh, people are usually the most sensitive to criticism themselves. Others believe Jesus is talking about the judgment of God, perhaps going so far as to communicate God's eternal judgment in that such a critical spirit reveals who we truly are, having failed to, to internalize the, the grace and forgiveness that we've been shown in Christ ourselves. Talked about this a couple weeks ago. One of the great signs that God's grace has truly and deeply worked its way into our hearts, it's the ability to both receive it and extend it. Others I think perhaps Jesus is talking about the kind of judgment that you see in 1 Corinthians 11 where many had received communion in an unworthy manner and had brought judgment upon themselves which manifested itself in people becoming weak, people becoming ill, some even dying. What Paul refers to as a disciplinary judgment. Or, or perhaps going back to last week, Jesus may be talking about the judgment of rewards on the basis of how our lives and hearts reflect the, the song of the kingdom. He did just talk about, if you recall last week, storing up treasures in heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in commentating on this passage, says, if, if we sit as an authority in judgment upon others, we have no right to complain if we are judged by that very standard. It is quite fair. It is quite just. And we have no ground whatsoever for complaint. We, we claim and he's getting after what we do when we do what Jesus is saying not to do. He says, Lloyd-Jones says, we claim we have this knowledge. And if we have that knowledge, we must show it by living up to it. By the claim that I myself make, I myself shall be judged. If therefore I am careful in my scrutiny of other people in their lives, that very standard comes back upon myself and I have no ground at all for complaining. The answer to me, if I complain, would be this. You knew it. You were able to exercise it with regard to others. Why did you not exercise it in your own case? He says, it is a very surprising and alarming thought. There is nothing I know of, he says, that is 
uh, is so likely to deter us from the sinful practice of condemning others and from that foul and ugly spirit that delights in doing so. Like, whatever Jesus means by our being judged on the basis of our judging, his words are, are definitely meant to sober us. That if we really care about truth and righteousness, we'll care about it first and foremost in our own hearts, in, in our own lives. So that arguably, on the basis of what Jesus is saying, the first thing that we should probably assume in seeing sin in the life of, a, of another brother or sister, we should probably assume that our vision might be impaired. Whether it be with respect to having all the facts of the situation with respect to that person, or perhaps even assuming that our own sin just might be worse, perhaps even informing the way we're viewing that other person in the first place. That just when we think our neighbor needs us to deal with his or her speck, Jesus is saying we're meant to recognize that we just might need our neighbor, maybe the one with the speck in his eye, to help us with our log. Those people in our lives whom we have a tendency to ask, what am I missing? Where's the log in my own life? That those oftentimes tend to be the very ones who welcome us to address their speck. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who cry out like the psalmist, who in this case happens to be David, King David, Psalm 139, the very one who was blind in that moment with the prophet Nathan says this, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus is out to free us from, from the kind of blind hypocrisy that he's been talking about now for chapters by showing us our spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, while at the same time showing us God's infinite mercy in, in him. Right? Sinclair Ferguson says, with respect to these verses, the heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness will always be restrained in its judgment of others. It has seen itself deserving judgment and condemnation before the Lord, and yet, instead of experiencing his burning anger, has tasted his infinite mercy. It's the gospel presents us with this question, have we, have we truly tasted the Lord's infinite mercy in Christ? Have we truly tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness in our own lives? What Jesus is saying is the gospel frees us to discern the sins of other people through compassionate, sympathetic, humble, self-judged eyes. Eyes that have taken a serious look in the mirror Eyes filled with, to go back to that Beatitudes language, eyes filled with tears that, that mourn our own sinfulness first. Eyes filled with meekness and having tasted God's mercy for oneself. So that, to use that kind of language that Paul uses in Galatians 6 verse 1, so that we might restore those caught in, in any sort of transgression in a spirit of gentleness. Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Going back to something I mentioned early on, what Jesus says here helps to make clear that, that he's not calling his followers to completely abandon discretion. In, in fact, here he addresses the, the exact opposite danger of judgmentalism, right? 
namely the absence of discretion altogether, which we might be inclined toward if we stopped with verse five out of fear of what Jesus has just said. In verse six, you, you have this language that um, we don't need to know a lot about, but culturally we, we need to know um, just a, a little bit about, and we've talked about this before as well in, in previous sermon series, that dogs in ancient Near Eastern culture, um, they weren't like Labradoodles today. Like that's not the picture that you're meant to get in your, in your mind. Um, dogs in ancient Near Eastern culture were despised dumpster divers. They were unclean scavengers. They were dangerous at times. Pigs, also considered scavengers, unclean according to the Old Testament law. On the, on the other hand, Jesus talks about pearls that are symbolic of the worth of the kingdom of heaven. So that Jesus will go on to say in Matthew's gospel account, a few chapters down the road, Matthew 13, 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That treasure in a field language. What Jesus is declaring is, is that the good news of the kingdom is a pearl and not everybody's gonna see that pearl as valuable. In fact, some will respond with hostility and anger. Some will embrace the pearl of the gospel with the faith of a sheep and others will revile the pearl of the gospel with the trampling of a swine, exhibiting this sort of hardness, resistance, cynicism toward the most precious truths of God, the precious truths of the gospel. You see it in the, the Jewish opposition in the book of Acts that leads Paul to turn to the Gentiles, chapter 13 and 18 of that book. You see it in Paul's warning in chapter three of his letter to Titus. You see it in Jesus's refusal to respond on the one hand when he's brought before Herod, though he was willing to respond on the other hand when he was brought before Pontius Pilate. So that Jesus is calling us to exercise wisdom in discerning when to move on in the midst of others' rejection of the good news of the kingdom. Does anybody feel sufficient to do that well? I don't know about you, but like one of the things that rattles me most about the gospel accounts, I've said this before, is every time Jesus speaks in cowardice, I don't think I would have. And every time Jesus is silent, I think I would have been brash and opened my big mouth. Like, it blows my mind so that Jesus' righteousness credited to me also involves his perfect use of speech. It's mind-blowing. That alone should, should bring us to our knees saying, I can't do this on my own. And yet there's more. It's like an infomercial. Like Je Jesus says, you're to exercise wisdom in discerning when to move on with the pearls of the gospel. And yet you can't forget what I've just said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is you're also to, to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. You're, you really are meant at this point in this morning's passage to, to go, I can't do this, Jesus. Not in my own strength. I don't know when to move on, when to walk away, when to hit my knees and lift other people up to the throne of heaven. I'm poor in spirit. I'm desperately needy. We're meant to see that we're beggars for God's grace. We're beggars for God's wisdom, God's power, completely and sufficiently inadequate in our own wisdom and strength, which helps to make perfect sense of why Jesus would then go on to say in verse seven, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, Jesus says, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Contrary to popular belief, this, this is not the foundation of a blank check theology. That's not what Jesus is, is doing here. This is not a name it and claim it passage of scripture in a broad sense. Throughout the entirety of Jesus' sermon, he, he's been showing us how truly needy we actually are. We're beggars before God so that we might actually cry out who is sufficient for these things. Like these verses are, are about coming to God for help and grace so that we might live in accordance with our kingdom citizenship. If, if we're less than convinced on the basis of this morning's passage, Luke makes it crystal clear in his parallel version of, of what Jesus says here in Matthew's account. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, listen to these words. Luke says, in quoting Jesus, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give not good things, as Matthew's gospel account says. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The good gifts that Jesus is talking about in this morning's passage, they're the gifts associated with the indwelling spirit of God. So that if we, if we only saw our desperate need, we would embrace these words of Jesus for all that they're worth. Asking it will be given to you, Jesus says. Asking, it comes from a posture of neediness, a poverty of spirit. Seek and you will find. Seeking puts that very posture of neediness into action and looking intently for the very help that we've asked God for. Knock and it will be open to you. Knocking shows a, a degree of persistence, right? A refusal to stop banging on the door until God opens that door. Extending to us the, the grace we need, the help we need to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how we know Jesus is declaring our absolute neediness this morning. The words ask, seek, and knock in the original language, those are present imperatives, meaning that the, the most literal translation would be keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. This is a, a never-ending uh, ritual in the life of the Christ follower. It's a posture of ongoing desperation, a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Again, to go back to that Beatitudes language. So that we have to ask ourselves, in light of what Jesus is saying this morning, is this, is this a part of my life as, as a follower of Christ? Like, do, do I persistently ask and seek and knock for God's grace in my life? Do I see myself as sufficiently incapable of what God is calling me to? Do I persistently ask and seek and knock for God's wisdom in my life as it pertains to matters of discernment? Do I persistently ask and seek and knock for God's power in my life, recognizing that I'm completely weak and powerless in and of myself? We, we know the kind of persistence that Jesus is talking about here, I think, because it comes to bear in our own lives in, in desperate times that require desperate measures, right? So that many of us know what it's like to plead with God for the healing of a loved one in their sickness, Many of us know what it's like to, to plead with God to meet our needs in a season of financial hardship. We know this kind of desperation. And what Jesus is saying is that he wants us to be that desperate and persistent 
in pleading with God for his enabling grace and power so that we might actually live out the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) None of us can love our enemies in our own strength, myself included. None of us going back to the beginning of chapter six can practice righteousness without the aim of self-adoration in our own strength. We can't do it. None of us can exercise the discernment Jesus calls us to in this morning's passage in our own strength. It's not possible. I mean, think about this. If you could just really simplify it down, the very nature of asking is an acknowledgement that God must give it, right? That we cannot muster it in and of ourselves. So that, I would say this, and I think this is significant in light of this sermon series. It comes back to some of the things that, that Marilyn was hitting on just a few minutes ago. The very nature of, of, of what Jesus is saying is a declaration that prayer is an indispensable lyric in the song of the kingdom. It's the desperate cry of the children of God for his grace and help. I'm not sure we quickly go there. Right? When we think of singing this song of the kingdom with our hearts and our lives, it, it feels like something that, that must have hands and feet put to it. And what Jesus is saying here says, no, sometimes it must have knees put to it. The song of the kingdom involves a lyric of prayer and it is indispensable in what Jesus is getting after. It's how we obtain entrance into the family of God in the first place, declaring our spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, acknowledging our desperate need for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That kind of posture, that kind of heart's cry. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The the cry of the leper in chapter eight coming right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Coming back to D.A. Carson in his commentary, he says, God's approval rests on the person who is poor in spirit. Such a person recognizing his personal spiritual bankruptcy and his personal inability to conform to kingdom perspectives will be eager to ask God for grace and help, impatient to seek the blessings only God can give, delighted to knock at the portals of heaven. He also recognizes, Carson says, that salvation now And the full richness of that salvation in the consummated kingdom depends on God's grace, God's free, unmerited favor. This man rejoices to read Jesus' invitation to ask, seek, and knock. He comes as a humble petitioner seeking pardon and grace. If you're not a Christian, you ask, seek, and knock for the very first time, and and if you are, you, you just keep doing it for the rest of your life, right? And what is the posture of God in response to that persistent, humble petition? I love this. Contrary to popular belief, even within evangelical circles, God doesn't get some demented joy out of watching us squirm. Isn't this good news that, that stones and snakes are only ever given by accident or in cruelty and God is, is way too perfect and wise to make a mistake. That's not our God. And God is way too kind as our Father in heaven to be cruel and holding out on us. So that Jesus says, your Father delights in giving you the grace and help you so desperately need in order that you might reflect the kingdom ethic of love. He loves to respond to that prayer, loves to. Jesus says, if earthly parents who are sinners by nature and choice, boy, if that doesn't resonate with me for sure, if they don't give good gifts to their children, 
or if they do, I should say, how much more will our perfect Father in heaven give good things to, to his children in their posture of neediness so that the very ones, and this is the upside down nature of Jesus's kingdom, so that the very ones who see their inability to live out the Sermon on the Mount, they're the ones who in coming before the Lord as beggars receive his grace, the very grace which enables them to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Is that not crazy? It's one of the great promises of scripture. God's commitment to enabling beggars with his grace and power in response to their persistent prayers to honor him with their lives. John Newton once wrote, uh, the old hymn writer, thou art coming to a king, that's you in prayer, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You can't ask too much for the grace of God in your life. You can't ask too much for the power of God in your life. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I would just invite you right now, if, if this has not been your posture up to this very moment this morning, that you would come to God with the posture of a beggar crying out, Jesus, I can't make myself clean. Your words are an indictment on me before they're a joy. My only hope is for you to make me clean. And I love that if that's your heart's cry, this is a God who loves to respond with mercy and grace, declaring, I will, I'll do it, be clean. And that if you are a Christian, I don't know, maybe you come in like me this morning feeling a little depleted, maybe running on fumes, not much in the tank, in need of God's sustaining grace. I would just encourage you to not stop persistently praying and to do so with confidence that, that God will give you what you need. Our Father in heaven, he loves to answer the cries of his kids, particularly when those cries are for the grace necessary to sing with our lives and sing with our hearts this song of the kingdom that we've been talking about for weeks now. Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's what many of us commonly know as the golden rule, right? And Jesus says that it sums up the law and the prophets. That's kind of weighty, right? It's easy to gunsling the golden rule in proclamation. And, and Jesus shows us right here on the spot that it's impossible to practice the very thing that we can so easily proclaim. He's given us a microcosm of, of what he's talking about here in verse 12, going back to the very first verses of chapter seven, right? Going back to the blind criticism, the, the merciless condemnation. Verse 12 is, is essentially another way of Jesus saying, love God and love neighbor. On those two commands, Jesus says elsewhere in the gospel accounts, depend all the law and the prophets. Apart from Jesus, it's an indictment. It's a reminder of the carrion flies that we are far too often preferring corruption to health. But here's the good news, and I'm gonna close with this this morning. This is not the first time that we've seen that law and prophets language in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it shows up one other time in these three chapters of Matthew's Gospel account. Chapter five, verse 17, where Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
so that God doesn't walk away from his promises. He fulfills them in Jesus. We talk about it all the time around here, that Jesus is the lamb without blemish or spot, whose righteousness is credited to carrion flies by faith. He's the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, forever satisfying the law's demands against us, so that in Christ, the fullness of God's mercy and grace might be ours, forever reconciled to our Father in heaven who delights, Jesus says, in giving us the grace and help we so desperately need in order that we might live in accordance with our kingdom's citizenship for his glory. Jesus says, all you need to do, all you have to do is ask.